Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am so blessed and honored to have Kim Tasker sitting here with me. Did I say it right, Tasker? Uh-huh. Who I've gotten to know really well over the years and gotten to watch become very successful at her many endeavors along with her partner, Zach, down here in Nicaragua. And like in episode 33 with Seth, they've had some very unique experiences down here in Central America with the healthcare system. And really wanted to kind of bring their experiences to the forefront for other people out there who might be striving for a similar life, a life where we get to really enjoy the simple things, the beach, our children running the beach, you know, the the hours throughout the day that we have to really enjoy and embrace our friends, where people back home might not have that same luxury because they're just grinding it out trying to make that rent or make that whatever it is they're trying to make of their life. And, you know, I've seen you and Zach design something special and beautiful here. And I just want to bring you on and share that with everybody. Awesome. Thanks, Welcome Shaper. to the show, Kimmy. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, that's a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Maybe we can just start with, you know, a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, and how you met Zach. Cool. Um, so, originally, I was born in New Zealand, Aotearoa, which means the land of the long white cloud. Um, and my family moved to West Australia when I was four. Um, moved to West Australia because my dad worked for BHP Iron Ore. So we were up in the Pilbara area. And then my mum and dad separated when I was six. So we moved to Perth. So I grew up most of my life in Perth. Um, pretty suburban, South Perth, nice area, but with a single mum. And then, um, had a really great childhood, loving family. And then, Went back to New Zealand to discover my roots, um, more so. Um, By yourself? Knowing... Like eight, 18, you left Perth and headed back to New Zealand? Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, so um, actually I moved to Queensland and stayed with some family friends, the Wheatlands over in Queensland, and I moved to a hippie commune. <laughs> and, um, and then from there I moved back to New Zealand, and I actually, while I was in New Zealand, I lived with my grandmother in South Auckland, which is a very Māori-orientated community. Um, being part Māori myself. Um, and can you explain what Māori is to mm-hmm. our listeners who don't know that term? Yes. So uh, Māori is uh, Indigenous New Zealander. So my mum is part Māori and Tongan, and my dad is Caucasian. He's from English descent. And so Māori is the Indigenous um, New Zealanders. Okay. Thank and you. Um, so when I was there living with my grandmother, she actually was getting sick with cancer, so I helped nurture her through her passing twilight years. Um, and plus I got to know her very deeply and also rekindle my relationship with my culture, um, which is also a big part of some of the things which we might go in later on with the whole children thing, especially with the Nicaraguan side of Absolutely. it all. Absolutely. Um, Can we just touch upon your culture and, and, and how you reconnected with it, what you felt you had lost and what then you found within your culture when you went back? Because yeah. I'm interested. I don't know much about Kiwi culture. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, being brought up in urban West Australia, um, very multicultural with a lot of like 
Aussies, Italians, Croatians, Irish, English and whatnot. Um, my best friends and my friends around me, my best friend Kat Evans, she's uh, part Czechoslovakian but of English descent living in West Oz. My other best friend, Danielle Hewlett, she's Yugoslavian but part Italian, second generation. So very multicultural from Europe and a lot of Aussies and also a lot of Aboriginals. So my mum was on social welfare for a long time while we were kids because we were, um, my mum was single. So where I was brought up, we were in a social welfare area, but it was in a very nice, surrounded by very um, wealthy areas. So I happened at my high school to have really good friends from very good families. And because my mum was super loving and has a very strong cultural sense of non-materialism, but just cultivating love, I grew up never feeling I had a lack mentality because my mum always harnessed within me and my brother and my sister this strong sense of culture, strong sense of roots, that we have roots, that we come from New Zealand and we're loved. And so even though my mum was on social welfare and she worked two jobs and we didn't have the nicest house, my mum used to drive around in a Datsy 180B where all my other friends' parents had two parents with nice cars. I never saw that until I was older and left because I never felt a lack. So the idea was is that mum wanted to give us that sense of culture but I never experienced it really because we lived in a foreign country. So I always wanted to get, what is she talking about? What's all this stuff about like manakiatanga, which is just being opening your home and loving strangers? So I wanted to go back to New Zealand to really rekindle all of the teachings she'd give me but never really experienced because we never went back as kids. But my grandparents on my dad's side who were white used to come and visit us every year. But that wasn't the side that I was really reaching out for. So when I went back to New Zealand, I went back to Ihamatu, which is in South Auckland. And South Auckland is a very poor, indigenous area. And I had a culture shock. I was like, oh, my God, Mum, I'm just walking down the streets and there's bars on the windows and everyone looks so rough and mean and have these funny accents. And she's like, yeah, that's where I grew up. And I'm like, wow, this is hardcore. You know, it kind of shocked me, but I was intrigued by it and I really wanted to learn more from it. And my family, when I first got back to New Zealand, my nana put on, for example, a big hungi for me. And a hungi is a feed. And I was coming from the hippie commune in Queensland and I was a complete vegan. She put on this hungi and traditional hungi is like pig, fresh fish that my uncle from down Port Waikato would catch. They'd go out and hunt boar. They'd live off the land and they would bring all this food to prepare for a hungi. They'd put up a big tent. My aunties and uncles, all my cousins came from everywhere to like welcome me home. And, and you didn't know them really? I didn't did. really know them at all. No, I didn't. Only from like my nana, really from my mum and the phone conversations we'd have on the phone, the old phones. Wow. So it was kind of like this real homecoming and me being kind of a little snotty-nosed kind of parkified, which is white, West Australian Māori, coming into this scenario was really overwhelming, but at the same time beautiful. It was like a real homecoming. But my nana said to me, why aren't you eating? Why aren't you eating all this big, beautiful kai we've prepared for you? I'm like, well, I'm a vegan. I don't eat pork. I don't eat beef. I don't eat fish. 
don't be stupid. Your uncles went out and caught you this pig and they went and caught you this fish and how disrespectful and like we've been waiting for you and little did I know because I'm ignorant of this that the idea in Maori culture is, is when you lay down food, it's like a blessing and it's to create harmony because people come together and eat food to like equalize the atmosphere to come together in a place of harmony. And then after they eat, then they can argue or then they can go out and fight each other. So that, that time is sacred for like, just like being harmonious and sharing food. It's beautiful. So it was okay. I didn't really eat it. She kind of thought, this is my weird granddaughter from Australia. She's so parkified, but whatever. But I became so close to my grandma and she, she got to know me and they all thought I was a bit weird, but they all loved me and I loved them heaps too. And I learned a lot from that. But pretty much I couldn't really survive there because it was just sort of like I felt like I had to kind of look after everyone. And Can I ask one question? Did you, when you reconnected with your culture, find that there were certain avenues of alternative medicine that came out of that reconnection? Because I know you're very spiritually minded, uh, connected with the earth, connected with nature and the herbs that nature provides you. Did, is that when you kind of tapped into that, when you reconnected with your, your culture? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say a lot of it also comes from my mum prior to um, venturing off with my mum's best friends who were also kind of that way inclined to Queensland, which is why I went there. And then in the hippie commune, it was all an evolution of that same concept. So my mum was always into natural medicine and cultivating and reminding us about living off the earth and being in tune with nature. So with my nana, my nana more so than ever because that's who passed it on to my mum. So my nana really did live off the earth. And where our family traditionally from on the west coast, just above Raglan, Port Waikato, everyone pretty much lives off the land. And so for both my husband and I actually now, just sitting here talking to you, one of the most beautiful aspects of feeling an ability to surrender into our life is always knowing that we actually have the land to go to. So one of the biggest things my mum always said, that if you have land, you have life. So all of this being strange, like Indigenous cultures being pushed off their land, that's super, super, like a severe cut from the umbilical cord from anyone's life existence. That was really ingrained in me as a child that you actually have land, Kim, my brother and sister, at home in New Zealand. We have land. Both my husband and I do because we have tribal land. So my nana would always take us down to the Marae in Port Waikato and we'd go get pippies from the sea with our toes. We'd rub our toes and grab conch shells out. And Zach's mum would do the same and we'd get them and put them in a bucket and go home and cook them. That was always a part of it. My nana would always grab a herb and, and say, oh, this is manuka and this is what we do with it. Very much from my experiences with her and that free point of pound of time before she passed away was all about like really seeing the old ways. And then um, more so later on when I married my husband, his mum is also very strong into the tangata whenua, which is the land. Even here now in Nicaragua, this is our second home and we love it. We have very strong ties to Nicaragua. It's the same concepts we're trying to apply in our life here is being able to live off the land. So in the properties that we've purchased, 
particularly one of them, it's all about building that well to have access to fresh water to drink and having soil to grow your own crops and to live off the land. Mm -hmm. So basically, if everything turns to shit, (laughs) your children know how to survive and to live simply with what God's given us. That's beautiful. I didn't know that. That's so interesting. Can we talk maybe a little bit about how you met Zach, your current husband? And I know you have some incredible stories of adventure that you got to share with him until you came to Nicaragua. you mind sharing a few of those with us and how you met? Yeah. Well, actually, the funny way that Zach and I met is we both were in Wellington, New Zealand, and at that time there were a lot of movies being made. Um, and both Zach and I, we worked on the movie King Kong, which is directed by Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. So Zach worked on the Lord of the Rings movies, um, all of them, Avatar as well, and um, Lovely Bones. He was in the Greens department. Um, he actually has a background in studying at university doing ecology. He was always into the bush and into the trees and whatnot. So he worked in the Greens art department in the making of the movies, and actually he made the Avatar tree in Avatar. Hmm. And we both met at the King Kong rap party. No way. So kind of like having a really good night, listening to this amazing music, Fat Freddy's Drop, free party that King um, Peter Jackson put on for the cast and all their families. And Zach and I met like at 3 a.m. in the morning because there were all these different departments of where the productions had parties all over the city. And then right at the end of going through all these different parties, design party, you know, wet a digital party, ended up here and I, that's where I met him. <laughs> and it was like love at first sight, or did you date for a while, or was it just like... Um, it was kind of like um, love at first sight. Well, for me, I was super intrigued by his strength, but also softness, and mm-hmm. his like real respect for um, gentlemanship kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like he was super... And now that I know him really well, and I know his mom and his sister, I see where it comes from again comes from his mother and fa- his mother and sister. He's had strong female influences in his life and also from the Māori culture side that he's super gentlemanly. And, like, I have a beautiful best friend and I remember the time that I kind of felt like I really started falling in love with him was that we were actually at the Māori Queen's Tangi, her funeral, the Māori Queen in Port Waikato, and it was raining and my friend was pregnant and he took off his jacket and he put it over her because and held it because it was raining so she wouldn't get wet. For me, that was kind of like where the penny was sort of dropping because he had that real respectful, gentle way of just really being a gentleman. And he does it in a soft, quiet way, in a strong way. And I was just like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. You guys have shared plenty of adventure as well. I mean... You've worked all over the world together as a couple in some beautiful places doing some really cool things. Can you talk about that and tell us a few of the things that you've done? Yeah. So, yeah, well, actually this year in November, we've been married 10 years. It just feels like a blinking of the eyelids, actually. Um, But we left New Zealand um, after we've been working and stuff like that, saving money. And we went to London. We went to England. And Zach was actually born in England, so he had an English um, birth certificate. And so before we left, um, mainly for the residency, we decided, okay, let's get married so that I could get a spousal visa for England so that I can work too. And um, But then halfway through it, I was like, well, I don't actually want to get married if it's just for the visa. And he was like, well, let's get properly married then. 
And so we got married before we went overseas. We went to England. We didn't really last that long in England because we're too far away from the coast because um, we were in London. Had such a great time. It was over the summer, saw lots of amazing music, caught up with lots of our Kiwi and Aussie friends and made new friends from all over the world. And then Zach was working a full-time job doing construction and I actually was working at Les Ambassadors, which is an exclusive massage, exclusive club actually, that's next to Buckingham Palace where um, they have like a little casino, but it's an exclusive club for like royalty near Buckingham Palace and um, like the Sultan of um, Brunei. Brunei and the Prince of Omar and that were like the clientele. And actually I was doing, because my background in the training is in physical therapy, health diploma and health science and yoga. So I got this job through Les Ambassadors massaging from four in the afternoon to eight in the morning at these high all, end. All, all night. Yep, high end poker games whereby the people at the table were like the owners or the English and um, New York reps for or CEOs of Goldman and Sachs, um, the Prince of Oman. It was an exclusive club. It's really I didn't even know who half these people were. And Can they, you tell me what how big the hands were on the table? Well, we would be in pound, so I think I can hardly remember, but just to play the game, it was something like you had to put down like five thousand pound. And then the chips, because we used to earn our money through chips. Okay. And the lowest denomination chip was a hundred pound. Okay. So that's the lowest end. But to just sit on the table, you had to pay five thousand pound. But even to be a part of the club, you had to exclusively be allowed in the club. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just anyone could walk off the street and just throw down a thousand dollars, five thousand pounds. Okay, like that's the criteria. Got it. And then, um, so anyway, we would get paid by chips. I do on-site chair massage to these people. I don't even know who they are, apart from mm-hmm. some of those people I mentioned. And we'd work all night and we'd work every second night or as many shifts as you liked. But normally we'd take a day off and rest because it was from four to eight in the morning. But it and sounds like you're getting a minimum of a hundred pound chip oh, as a tip. Yeah. <laughs> so honestly, the money was just ridiculous, but we would also pay commission to return to glory, which was the company that I worked for. Mm-hmm. And so they're a company that does like on-site yoga massage to like Cindy Crawford and Madonna, and they do makeup and personal buying and yoga classes and all of those sorts of things to really high-end clients. So they take their business to these people. And um, so literally we would give a commission, but we would come out with so much money. And so I was doing this like on a, a roll, like a, a hamster on a roll, super tired but making a lot of money. And then also I was teaching yoga every now and again. at um, Now it's called the Hot Yoga Powerhouse in Houston. Um, in I would be doing Ashtanga yoga and teaching yoga at a studio. So it was all becoming too much and I felt like I was on a, a like hamster meal and it was just becoming too much. I wasn't enjoying it, making so much money. So then we decided, I decided to apply on Gumtree, look on Gumtree for a job that was maybe using my skills of yoga and massage, maybe somewhere in a really nice destination with sun and ocean. And that's when I looked from Gumtree and I found some jobs on some yachts in Greece and then I found Surf Morocco. I applied for a position in Surf Morocco that was looking for a variety of positions, 
Maybe this is like Surf Morocco. Surf Morocco. Okay. Yeah, so um, Surf Morocco in Morocco, Tagazut and Agadir. Mm-hmm. And actually our friends from Surf Morocco just came here last month, hmm. fell in love with Nicaragua. <laughs> They've been here before, but this is the first time we met them here. It was amazing. They, they have kids now. Um, so anyway, long story short, applied for the position. They were looking for a variety of positions like yoga teacher, masseuse, surf instructors, cooks, surf guides, administration, booking agents, everything that's kind of in this industry. And I pretty much applied for every position. And the position that I couldn't do, which was the surf guiding and the cooking, and I applied for my husband, Zach, under. So as a team, I applied for both of us. <laughs> without we, him knowing? Or without him know? knowing. <laughs> no way. <laughs> So we were coming back from reading on the train after I'd already done two Skype interviews with Vicky Boswell, who's the owner, and she was liking everything about me, but she wanted to really talk to Zach. And then I had to, we had to stop the train. I put my hand over the phone. And I said, Zach, Zach, I applied for this job for us in Surf Morocco for you to be a cook and for you to be a surf guy, surf instructor. They just wanted to talk to you. And he's like, we're coming back from a night of parting out and reading. And he's like, what? What? What do you mean? And I said, just talk to them. They're going to ask you a few questions. We get off the train so that we could hear the phone. As soon as he hangs up the phone, he says, don't ever apply for a job for me again without me knowing because I've totally put him on the spot. Why wouldn't you tell him? Why was it? Why well, did because you I didn't know that we would. they would call back or they'd want to take it further. Oh, I see. I didn't realize that they were so interested in us that they would just call on a Sunday mm-hmm. to talk to Zach. So that was kind of the thing. Like I realized then, oh, yeah, they are actually quite keen. Uh-huh. And then at the end of the conversation, we laughed about it recently actually with um, Lily and Ben, the owners of Surf Up, and they just came here. Um, and then they they were like, oh, well, we're not too sure about Zach actually. Do you mind if we meet you guys on a Skype call? We can actually see you and we'll give him another go. Maybe you have some time to think about it. Could we talk maybe on Tuesday and let's just give it another go? And then that was that. And I said, okay, sure. And then I spoke to Zach about it and he got mad. I said, don't ever apply for a job for me again, which I did actually. <laughs> and then um, he said to me, I'm not a cook. I said, but you cook amazing because his dad owns restaurants and his dad comes from a restaurant background. And his dad trained in England. That's why I was born in England. And they bought some holiday inns in New Zealand when they moved back. And his dad has a beautiful restaurant in the vineyard in in Otaki in New Zealand. And so he comes from this background and he is an amazing cook, so is his mum. So when we had dinner parties with friends, I got to experience, and he would just cook for me and him at home before we went travelling, and the food was always blow, blew my mind. So I kind of knew he could do it, but that's not his career. So when I said, just give it a go, let's just do the interview, because how amazing would it be if we moved to Morocco and they're going to pay for our airfares and you've never been to Morocco, maybe it'll work. And he's like not loving it, not digging it. When we arrived into Marrakesh, did the interview, Vicky and um, Ollie were giving us a go. They both said, you know, we're not sure about you guys, you know, Zach's not really coming through on this side of the bargain kind of thing but we'll give you a go. We're prepared to go out on a limb and see if it works. Drove all the way down from Marrakesh to Agadir. He didn't speak to me the whole time because he was so nervous about it. And got there, the first job he did, met Paulie, which is this English guy, helped him, cooked at a surf camp for 30 people. Then after that, did that for probably a minimum of a month. They moved him to the yoga retreats. 
to exclusive yoga retreats. Then both him and I, we moved to private apartments to just be on-site, one-on-one with private apartments with high-end clients because he just knocked them out of the water with his cooking skills. Oh, he moved up that quickly. Moved up that quickly. But you said the first one didn't go so well. No, the first one was fine, although Paulie helped him a lot. Oh, I see. Because he didn't know how to use a tagine. I see. And the tagine is the traditional cooking pot. Mm-hmm. And he had no idea. He didn't do his research. He wasn't really interested in cooking. He didn't realize that a tagine is what they use in Morocco. Uh-huh. And if you've got big groups, you should use a tagine. I see. So Vicky's like, make a couple of big tagines. And he's like, what? What's a tagine? Mm-hmm. So he got a good helping hand from Paulie. And Paulie helped as well. And Paulie helped to move into the yoga retreats. Okay. And then as they expanded, they moved everyone around. And Zach was able to move up. So he could do it. And mm-hmm. I knew he could do it, mm-hmm. but he kind of didn't know he could do it. <laughs> he didn't even know that this was an opportunity. I didn't know this was an opportunity, really. Um, I just looked on Gumtree and saw all these positions. And at that time when we graduated from, when I graduated doing all of my training and stuff, there wasn't really an industry like a surf yoga retreat industry. This stuff wasn't in my vocational expos. There's no such thing as this. It was very back in the beginning when all this stuff was just starting but now it's like it's a career, like the yoga, surf industry, travel industry, wellness, health. It's huge and you can transfer it from yachts up to being on land. And that surf Morocco is actually how we started this whole traveling experience. From there we went on a yacht. The yacht took us to um, Spain. We put it on a boat. It got cargo to Spain. We met the owners and the Captain of the boat took us to Martha's Vineyard. We stayed there for six months, having the experience on a yacht. I'd already done yacht work before when I was um, in New Zealand. Just before I turned 20, I sailed a yacht from New Zealand, Auckland, at the America's Cup to Tahiti. So I kind of had, when we reached out for the yacht stuff, I already had that background and I knew we could transfer what we'd done onto a yacht. And then from there, that's how we got to Nicaragua. How, how explain how that connection was made? Well, we were in Martha's Vineyard. We were actually stayed there for six months. We stayed over, probably a little bit over our visa time. And our friends that we were staying with in Martha's Vineyard, they're all yachties. They're all from the vineyard. Um, he was like, you guys have to leave. Where are you going to go next? And we we're like, well, we are in America. We've never been to Central or South America. Maybe we should go there. And Spa's like, oh, well, you guys should go check out El Salvador. And I go and stay in these places in El Salvador. And this is the place I stay at. And you should check these guys out. Maybe they have a job for you guys. We were actually just thinking of traveling. weren't really thinking of working. Um, but we took his recommendations and we're like, oh, let's just look into it. And so we looked into AST, Adventure Sports Tours. They have a few locations here in Nicaragua and also over in Baja, Mexico and whatnot. We applied for a job through them and they said, can you come to San Diego and interview with us? Same sort of thing. They were looking for a variety of positions to fill and Zach and I filled all of them. We couldn't go to San Diego because we'd overstayed our visa. We needed to leave. Um, they said, okay, we'll meet us in El Zonte in El Salvador and we'll interview you there. So we interviewed there on a palapa overlooking the beach with some beers and the next day they gave us a call and said, yep, we'd love you guys to work for us. And we said, oh, whereabouts? And we knew that they were going to either set up a camp either in Nicaragua, they already have Mexico, they already have El Salvador, Chile was another destination. 
and Peru. Um, we didn't know where they were going to send us. And they said, we're going to send you to Nicaragua. I was like, oh, wicked. So, you know, telling my mom on Skype, guess what? We're going to Africa. She's like, cool, where are you going? I said, we're going to Nicaragua. And she's like, where's Nicaragua? I said, it's in Africa. And she goes, what? Say it again. I said, Nicaragua. And she goes, Nicaragua. And I said, yeah, that's where we're going. And she goes, you should look at a map. It's actually not in Africa. It's in Central America. I was like, ah, oh, that actually makes sense because all these other places are in Central and South America. But I had no idea. Neither did Zach. We come from Australia and New Zealand. We're not really connected with the Mexican, Latin American culture. No one speaks Spanish there. You know, it's all about Indo and Fiji and stuff. And so I was like, okay, cool, Nicaragua. And then we came and we worked with them. That's how it so started. where though? Like where is a a c what? A S T Adventure Sports Tours. And where was it? Where was your first? So our first camp was with Holly Beck, way okay. up north in Santa Marta near um, the Boom. So she represents A S T up in. No, well at that time she was using A S T. They had a facility, a house, and Zach and I were managing that house and cooking and doing all the concierge and looking after maintenance and whatnot. And Holly was subcontracting to use our services to host her retreats. And her retreats back there were called, now they're called Surf with Amigas. They were called like Suave Dulce. Mm-hmm. Her original name, Suave Dulce, mm-hmm. something like that. Dulce, yeah. I forget. Dulce. Dulce, something like that. Like sweet, like smooth and sweet. Yeah, smooth and sweet. Okay. That was Holly's original way back then. And so that was like, we've been here six years now. So that was like six years ago, 2011, 2010. And so Holly was actually our first gig that we did and we worked with her for ages and that's how we met her. And then from there, um, that kind of fell in a little bit, the whole... um, Location wasn't really right for them, so they looked for another location, which was central Porto Sandino. So their main camp now is La Barra in central Nicaragua, which is Porto Sandino. Okay. And so they still run that out of there, and Dave Hall is the boss and owner of that. And, um, and so we moved to central, and then we transitioned out of that because they went for a long time, actually, with no guests because they were setting things up and they didn't really have a lot of work going on. So then we worked for Surf Tours Nicaragua, which is also central Nicaragua, um, through Alex Hazel and his partner Larkin Hazel. And that was just a temporary position to manage while they went to Europe because Alex from England. And so we just worked for two months while they were in Europe. And then from there we knew we had to look somewhere else. And so we applied for a job and we got one in Aqua. So we moved from central to southern Nicaragua at Aqua with Jerry Rabano and Dan Rabano. And that's how we got to south um, Nicaragua and we worked there. And that was a short-term contract for four months. And that was just to help them set up their new kitchen and to host some yoga teacher trainings at Aqua, um, which was amazing. And we'd never been south like this. Well, Zach had with a tour group from AST but I had never been here and was pretty much blown away. It was after the rainy season, so it was November, and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then that kept us here. And then after four months here in um, Aqua, we knew we were coming up to an end, and then I reached out for some jobs around here, 
And on our one day off a week, Zach and I would walk down through Hagante and we'd walk across Hacienda Iguana and we'd park underneath this tree in front of Panga Drops with all these spines and we'd set up a tarp. It was super windy because it was like December, January and we would hang out all day and surf. Not that I could surf back then, <laughs> just flapper. And then um, we'd just hang out under this tree all day, pack up, walk back to Aqua and start work the next day on our one day off. Used to pass this house and think, wow, that's such a cool looking house with the pull up a roof. It looks so Indo styles and I just love the way that it looks and it's always empty. I wonder what goes on up there, but never really went up there or anything. And then once we, I sent out all these applications and pretty much spammed everyone once we left Aqua, I got all these replies back of maybe second interviews, maybe a third interview, let's do a Skype call, um, maybe answer some more questions via email. We shortlisted down to three jobs, and then at that time we got offered a job at Rancho Santana through Isabel Curry and her husband Chris Curry, and we took that job. And while we were at that job, we were playing out these responses for three positions. One was the Tuitai yacht in Fiji. The other was Macaroni's after the tsunami as managers at Macaroni's Resort in Indo, and then the third one was, what's the third one? Tuitai, macaronis, oh, Mark and Dave's. <laughs> so Mark, yeah, Mark and Dave's. So Mark and Dave's as well. Um, but that came kind of later towards the end. We'd already done a few interviews and Skype interviews with um, both the other two places. So when Mark and Dave's came out, it was because Mark Metcalf emailed out to us. And then from there, we kind of were playing each all of those out seeing what was going to happen where we should go. And it was super stressful, actually, because we wanted to make the right decision. But as it ended up, we did get the job at Tuitai. Um, we decided not to take it because we were not going to have any days off for six months and their managers don't work for long because you worked full on for six months, no days off. You're on a yacht. You have Fijian staff. The pay was insane, amazing. I forget exact dollars, but it's incredible pay. But that's why their managers only usually ask last one season. Um, so it was going to be like working the grind, but maybe afterwards have lots of money. Mm-hmm. Um, macaronis, we were bet by another Australian couple, Australian couple because the, the partner of the Australian couple, he could speak Indonesian. And then Mark and Dave's pretty much, we kind of had got that job by the sounds of it, but we weren't sure whether we we're going to take it or not. And then we decided, yeah, let's take it. And so we took Mark and Dave's and then we've been with them for over five and a half years. That's incredible. That's a really cool story. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And so you have made your mark with Mark and Dave's. I mean, and you've helped grow that to what it is now, which is the Mark and Dave's that's blasted on the internet at the surf competitions in California. You know, like they are an entity that a lot of people from where I come from in California recognize. Mark and Dave's, Nicaragua, Mark and Dave's, Nicaragua. But you and Zach are the ones who helped build that name because of your ability to really receive guests and help them have like some of the best experience of their life. And so it's been cool to watch you develop that and also kind of make your own life here now in Nicaragua and grow your own business, which is Tim Kim Tasker Yoga, (laughs) which is really cool. And, And recently we were discussing you having such a strong following with your yoga and wellness side of what you do that you're going to start your own podcast and you're going to do live yoga feeds to your followers who aren't here 
And can we talk a little bit about that and, and how that's kind of grown? Fabulous. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, um, yoga background. So, um, I'm a Shtanga yoga practitioner. I practice Ashtanga yoga every day, apart from the days that you don't practice Ashtanga, which is full moon, new moon. And if you're a lady, you'll rest days through the ladies' holidays. Okay. Um, and if you're pregnant and whatnot. So that's my, um, go to and my guru is Pataba Joyce over there on my shrine. And then my teacher is Shamila Desai. And so from that cultivation of my experience with yoga and it is an experiential part of my life it is yoga is my life that what I share is just coming from that root of yoga is every breath of my life um, and that's so for me I want to share that and I just share it willingly with those who want to dialogue and also through my classes and so what I've found since that I've been here in Nicaragua is I've been teaching now in Hacienda Iguana for over five years. So I have a lot of students that come back to my classes regularly. So like I have local a, gringos or Nicaraguans? What kind of students are we speaking? Yeah, so I have um, a bit of both. So locals that live here within Iguana, and then I have taught community yoga classes with Lindsay, Seth and Lindsay, um, for the local girls as well. And then I invite people to come to my classes, and they don't have to pay. So, for example, there's a lot of people who live here that I just say, just come, it'll just help, or maybe it'll help you breathe better or fix your back, and they are always open. I never will close the door to anyone. doesn't matter if you can't afford it. That's not about that. Anyone can come and do the class, especially if they're here, because it's a gift to be able to just share. So on top of that, I do make money from it because it is a business, but I'm floated by all the visitors that come. So all the visitors that come as well, they come to stay for vacation at Mark and Dave's. So we promote yoga retreats at Mark and Dave's and we are having this year, we've got six yoga retreats coming up and that's been a long history of cultivating an interest and also showing that this is really a yoga retreat destination. So now this year for the first time we have six retreats coming up, which is the first time we've had this many because it's taken time to cultivate that. Um, so with the students that come to my class, I'm now having students that actually have lived here or moved here or coming back, return guests, that have keep coming back to my class. And so I'm seeing them grow because it's about having that commitment to a teacher and really cultivating that commitment. So, if, for example, if you're with a coach and you just swap your coaches all the time, your coach can't see where you're growing and maybe areas which need more attention or cultivation. So the idea is to stay, to experiment, of course, experiment, but to have a teacher that you can connect to in order to milk more knowledge. And so for me, that's more where my teaching is coming from now. You know, it's okay having people coming in, but I'm having more people who are actually return guests at Mark and Dave's and more people who live here. So that's kind of been my focus. And that's why the podcasts for me are really important because I want to keep that connection. So even when they go home, go back to the States, they always ask me, oh, have you got something that I can follow? And so over so many times that people have asked me, they've gone, oh, I should really listen to what they're saying and let's just do this. And then that way they can keep in touch. I can keep in touch with them. They can email me if they have questions. 
and then cultivate maybe that return visit. That's not my motivation. It's not for them to come back and and stay or whatnot. It's so that we can keep a connection. So then how do you see it playing out? And when's the inaugural first podcast going to air? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to you maybe helping me. <laughs> okay. Um, so I've ordered my equipment and Kiki, my friend upstairs, her mum's bringing me my equipment. So I had another friend who worked in the film industry in Wellington help me choose my equipment. Um, so I've ordered my equipment, so I'm super excited about that. And it's coming and it will be delivered and it will be here um, in a week or so. And then I'm researching some websites um, from some yoga teachers that are doing podcasts. So when I was pregnant, I actually did a lot of podcasts. Um, so I love podcasts. You know, I follow your podcasts a lot and I listen to other podcasts. I find them, especially being here in Nicaragua, a really um, isolated place, a really nice way to keep informed and to keep growing with new information and to learn and learn from other people's experiences and their um, knowledge and whatnot. So I've always had that leaning to really appreciating the benefits of a podcast. So from that, I have had some websites that um, podcasts that I followed when I was pregnant, prenatal, and I clicked on, I forget her name, but I clicked on her on um, just the computer on her blog to find out what she was using. I see. And then from there, I pretty much replicated it, but I got the newer version. So I'm using a Zoom recorder. Good. And she used one previously and then said, now I'm using this one as an update on her blog. So that's how I've chose my equipment. And I'm really looking forward to, um, yeah, trying it out and seeing how it goes. And Yeah, it's a process. It'll yeah. be developed, but you're on the right track. I love the equipment that you've chosen and we'll have a lot more conversations, I bet. On yeah. how to how to keep developing it. Yeah. Um, with that said, I'd like to pivot the conversation now because as kind of touch upon a little bit in the beginning, you know, you have an experience unique here in Nicaragua that a lot of people, families don't have and might be seeking. And like that's kind of also why I brought Seth and Lindsay or Seth Lindsay couldn't make the conversation into episode thirty three where they had, you know, their child here who needed a heart operation. And they had a wonderful experience with the medical system here in Nicaragua. Unfortunately, the operation couldn't be done here, but they had an equally amazing experience in Panama. And so with you choosing to start your family here and getting pregnant here and now going through the adoption process here to have more children, maybe we can start there and just talk about, you know, your choice to have a child and how that all played out here in Nicaragua for you. Fabulous. Yeah. So, um, it's been a, well, I, um, I never used to menstruate. So I had problems conceiving naturally. So I went through a lot of my healing yoga journey and my physical therapy journey was also a lead into being able to heal myself. So that was why I was interested in these areas. Um, and that's because I have an underactive thyroid gland. And that meant that my ovaries were underdeveloped. They're like prepubescent ovaries with lots of eggs. The eggs never came to fruition. And so it wasn't anything dangerous or anything, but it meant that for so many years it was a relief. It's like, oh, I'm not menstruating. It's all good. I don't have to worry about it. But as I started to get older and really becoming more conscious of really knowing that my body in balance means that everything's working in balance. 
and really tuning into that through the yoga, becoming more concerned about actually finding remedies and solutions to that because ultimately at the end of that is conceiving a child. And so Which my was always a goal of yours? Did you always want absolutely. children? Okay. Yeah. So right from day dot, I've always wanted to um, have a child, have a family, um, but primarily have a, a, a father. Um, so I came from a separated family. And so I really did want to find my soulmate. And I wanted to find someone that I really loved and that our love together would manifest a child. So that whole family unit is encompassed more than just the child but that family unit which means coming from a single parent background as well means that Zach and I have had our ups and downs but my initial reaction would be to slam the door and walk out because that's what my mum did and my dad but fought so hard to really go against the grain of what I saw as a way to as a solution Mm -hmm. to really try and cultivate this idea of like finding a balance to not staying in a situation which is not harmonious because Zach and I, we have an incredible relationship, but it's not easy. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to have a family that is representative of a unit and that we love each other and we support each other. And so the, our son is really a cultivation of that, especially because Zach and I, we chose together to have IVF yeah. because it's a decision. We had maybe this misfortune, but we had to make a decision. We didn't just accidentally fall pregnant. We had to decide, hey, do you want to do this with me? Do I want to do this with you? You want to go the long haul? Okay, this process is not going to be easy. Are we going to do it? Mm-hmm. And so that was the decision to do that. And we did it here in Nicaragua mainly because the cost to do it in New Zealand when we investigated and the cost to do it in Australia it was really expensive. Like how expensive? Can you throw some numbers like, at me? Yeah. So um, when we went back for a vacation from Nicaragua on our holidays to New Zealand, first of all went to a natural healthcare clinic, naturopath who specialised in endocrinology from a medical background as well as blending that with naturopathy. And her treatments, just pre-treatments of getting me strong and getting my hormones going, like the yam cream on its own was like $246 just for a tub of yam cream, Mm -hmm. as well as the consultations. The actual IBS process we could have for free in both Australia and New Zealand, and I'm sure it's the same like in Canada. I know it was the same in England, um, Commonwealth countries with the medical system, but you are on a waiting list. Okay. And that waiting list is like two years to three years long. It's huge Mm -hmm. because it's free, so you need to wait. Those decisions for us were not really in the cards. It could have been, but it was not really in the cards because we really fell in love with Nicaragua. We really fell in love with our life. We loved what we had here. We didn't want to leave and go home and commit to the treatments for two or three years. Right. And that was a real decision which was not easy for our family, but it was really a decision that was made easier for us because when we discovered the options to be able to do IVF here in Nicaragua, the, the cost to do it here in Nicaragua at the Vivian Palace was like a third of the cost. So we're looking at like 10 grand, seven grand just to actually do the IVF and then all the other treatments around it pre to build up all the nutrients so that you're strong with all the hormones and whatnot, all of your consultations and then your post and then your delivery was all up around about 12, 15 grand. Okay. 
So in, in Australia, it was more expensive than New Zealand, but at bottom end in a private, if you were just not going to wait two years for free, you were looking at like 25 grand just for the IVF and all the other treatments around it were all expensive. That would add up to like 30 grand. Um, I've talked to clients at Mark and Dave's too who've done IVF and they're looking to 20, 30 grand US as well. Wow. And maybe even more so, it depends on what hospital you're at because normally if you're doing it, you're doing it through a private hospital. And um, that doesn't even include like the laboring and, you know, all that sort of stuff. There's a, it's a long process. You don't just decide tomorrow you're going to go do it. You, you have to have medication for over a year and then all your initial hormones when you're retrieving the egg, they're, you know, you have to take injections mm-hmm. and they're all very um, costly in the first world and here they're a fraction of the cost. All right. And I mean, obviously, you have a beautiful baby boy now, Tui, gorgeous. So it worked, obviously, and your overall experience was what? Uh, Amazing. Um, Dr. Lugo was our doctor, and he's the head of the fertility clinic at the Vivian Pellis, and he um, has all of his medical degree and background from Harvard University, and he actually, when he was living in the States, was head of his department. At Harvard. in, In Harvard, and at some hospitals that he worked in in Boston, I think it was, or New York. Um, so he is like well qualified to be the head of the fertility clinic here in Nicaragua. And then all of our, um, post, um, all of our assistants, or I'm not sure, backup doctors or support mm-hmm. doctors mm-hmm. were all incredible. We had one from Mexico. Gosh, I forget his name. Um, they were all amazing. And then all of the treatments, everything, the facilities are like a hotel. State of the art, clean, right from day one, right through to the whole birthing process was amazing. We actually didn't plan to have our birth at the Vivian Pellis. We planned to have a home water birth. Okay. But my son came early, so we had to go to the hospital because my midwife hadn't arrived yet. (laughs) And Dr. Lugo was turning about face. He was like, why are all these mums, is it a new trend that they want to have natural home births? It's not a trend. We've always had births at home. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just that in Latin America, they love to give C-sections. Okay. And so having a natural birth is actually how it's always been done. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not in that frame of mind because most elite or, you know, Well-to-do. Latin wealthy people, they just want to go in and have a C-section and get it out. Got it. But obviously there's ways that you do need to have it because the baby needs it mm-hmm. and the mum needs it. So mm-hmm. there's that as well. You know, it's necessary. Um, so he turned about face kind of at the end and said, oh, I'd like to come and assist at your natural home birth if you like, but we never ended up having it. So that was, uh, he was very supportive right to the end of whatever we wanted to do and how we wanted to have the birth. And so we ended up having a natural birth and it was amazing, very long, but amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. And then your choice Mm -hmm. to then continue to grow your family Mm -hmm. and go through the Nicaraguan adoption process. Yeah. How's that been going for you? Yeah, so um, this week's been a little bit of an uplift with the whole process because uh, we've started this process, I would say, we're probably about maybe 15 months into the process. Um, we have a consultant, Anna Shelton from Nika Outsourcing. She's helped us with our residency and our business setup and whatnot. She's also helping us with our adoption. So Anna's been amazing for us. Um, she speaks perfect English and she's Nicaraguan. She has a Nicaraguan. Um, an English husband. Um, she's studying law. So 
together with her help, um, we've had a very long process. It's not been easy and sometimes it's super trying. So one of the things is, is we are applying for adoption under Nicaraguan residency because we are residents. And what that means for us as well in terms of benefits, we're not applying for adoption as a foreigner because if we're to apply through Lighthouse or MGL, which is like foreign international adoption agencies, you would again need to pay. And to pay for this um, service, you're looking at like 10000 upwards for these services. Okay. It's very pricey. Interesting. And so um, we are not paying because we are applying under residency because we are Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is Nicaragua had a, um, a huge investigation of some corruption going on within Mi Familia. That's the main adoption department. And they fired uh, around about a year ago, they fired all of their head staff um, because of some corruption or some um, illegal, I suppose, activities. Not really sure in what detail, um, but basically the whole department was fired. Okay. Um, we thought there was, what I understood, hearing from Anna and the lawyers and that there was some sort of whistleblowing going and that whistleblowing meant that there was some international eyes watching and it was basically like you've got to clean up your department kind okay. of thing. So did they lose all your paperwork or something? <laughs> no, it meant that we couldn't submit our paperwork. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it meant that we were on a waiting list. I see. And we're actually still on that waiting list. So what we're doing now is we have we have prepared our dossier, it's called. We have our paperwork all in line. And now we're having to redo it because a lot of it is expired. And now we have an appointment in two weeks where Anna, Zach and I and my son, we're going into Me Familia and we're actually again standing right there at the office saying, please, can you take our folder? I see. Literally just standing there just with a smile on your face yes. and asking. Because it's been such a, a frustrating uh, process because no one knows when they're going to start accepting folders. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is we I have some websites that I follow and we have some lawyers that we're in contact with and we're constantly asking when are they accepting. So at the moment what they're doing is they're only accepting um, Nicaraguans, that Nicaraguans who actually are Nicaraguans, and they're only accepting because you, you put an application in for preferences, like criteria. So we put our application in for, for a little girl and her age was originally between 12 months and two years of age. But now we're 15 months into the process. We need to change our application form. Mm-hmm. We want to because mm-hmm. we don't want our son and her to be too far apart. I see. Because we've done research and study as to how close they should be in age in order to help her grow mm-hmm. and for him to assimilate with it. And that's two years apart. Okay. So we don't want their age to be too dispersed. Um that's for our story. Maybe others do it differently. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're following. And so we're changing our paperwork so that when we submit, the age is more conducive now. Because okay. my son's going to be three and a, he's three and a half now. And maybe by the time that he will, the adoption goes through, he could be at least six months, six months, wait, four. Mm-hmm. So we're moving her age up to two to three. I see. And um, now, just so I'm clear, is this like you're submitting into like a pool of children that then they choose one that's representative of the criteria that you have written down, or do you actually get to go in and yeah. and say like oh, I kind of that like the look of that child? 
Yeah, I'm so, sorry, I'm not no, really, I don't know how this yeah. works. No, that's fine. Um, it's great. It's great to ask these questions. At the beginning, we didn't really know them either, and actually some of our friends ask us. Mm. So a big part of the whole adoption process is now that we're doing this podcast, only a few of our friends know that we were adopting, but now we're actually going to be discussing more with our community that this is what's happening because we need to prepare everybody um, with those questions mm-hmm. so that people feel okay to ask us questions so that when she comes along, people aren't shocked and then asking weird questions or they feel that they're going to um, offend us or offend her or mm-hmm. hurt her. She can't understand, but things like that. So now it's going to kind of be out in the open. Okay. And so basically you they create a profile. So through the interviews, we've had one interview where we we've had two interviews, but one of the interview was just them giving us all the legal jargon about this is what our adoption process is, this is what you're going to need to do, you're going to need to do this, this, and this. And the second interview was them kind of ascertaining a little bit about who we were and what sort of people we were and whether they would actually let us even have the application for. Got it. And now when we submit, they will evaluate all the paper and then we have a couple of interviews. Those couple of interviews are psychological interviews and then one is like a home visit where they come and have a look at our house. They come to our job. They may interview friends or employees or people we work with and whatnot to get an idea of the type of people we are. From those interviews, psychological interview and the, the home visit, they will have an idea of what type of family we are. They profile us and then they choose a child which will suit our profile. Mm. And then from that, we get two choices. They will call us and say, hey, we have a little girl who's in your age requirement, two to four or two to three, who fits your profile. Here is a photo. It will come in for a meeting. Here's a photo and a brief outline of her specs or her details, which are very brief, and the medical part of it is super brief. They only have facilities and access to be able to do so much medical work with all the kids in the orphanage, and they will say whether they, she has a medical predisposition or anything going on, and but they have basic medical checkups. So like um, heart rate fine, height is this, health is this, good 20-20 vision. Uh, maybe she has um, diabetes. Mm-hmm. It won't be fully extensive. It's kind of the risk that you take, especially in developing countries from all the literature that I've studied and been learning and reading. So that's kind of what you get when you're in these countries. Mm-hmm. So you go on that, you trust that that's cool, and if she comes home she's got other predisposed stuff, well, that's the risk you take. Right. Um, and so um, we prepared for that. And um, they will say, is this profile good for you guys? You see her photo, is she good? And you say yes or you say no. And if you say no, you have to have a reason as to why. And then they give you another choice. That might mean you need to wait longer. Might mean to wait, mean that you go back to the back of the line and you wait longer again. And then the next one comes up. Maybe also they say that between the first and second calls, they actually have changed some of your criteria. It doesn't actually match 100%. So it could be actually we have a little boy that is between the age that you recommended, but his profile really suits your family, Mm -hmm. which you consider a boy, then you have more likelihood to be able to say yes or no. 
Mm-hmm. But they give you that option, and then you say, "Well, actually, we were really wanting a girl." So then we go into round two. Okay. After two rounds, you have to start all over again. Okay. They they take your folder out. You need to redo all your paperwork. So another two years. You've got to start over all over again. Okay. And what I've understand from friends that we have here who have adopted in Nicaragua, and through the um, websites and that that I follow about it here in Nicaragua and on adoption, is that most families end up taking the first child that they are given. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a divine blessing. It's like God is and the divine creator is guiding you towards the child and really seldomly, from what I understand, do people turn down their first child mm-hmm. application. Normally, always everyone says yes. I can imagine. I mean, that sounds like the process that you just talked me through is just you're so relieved to finally get that opportunity to, yes. again, parent and love something that you've been waiting for for so long. Yes. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And so you are about to submit the paperwork, and then the process could then be another six months, another year. You just don't really know. Yeah. So um, at the moment, as it appears, is that they're placing children that are older. Okay. And so <clears throat> if there's, like, children that are, like, three years and older, they will get placed pretty quickly with families, but there's not a lot of applications for that age group because mm-hmm. most people want children between birth and like two or three. So those older children, they're really trying to place first. So if we were to say, for example, on our application we had put an older child, we would more than likely get an adoption straight like that. If we have zero to two, we wait longer because there lots of people want the younger age mm-hmm. um, and that's because you know there's there's other considerations within adoption as well like an older child obviously comes with more um, experience in foster care or they've lived a longer life with trauma and um, unfavorable circumstances so obviously they're harder work right you know you're going to need to give more care and it's you know um, we don't have the facilities within our family network we feel to be able to invite an older child so we've we really are trying for a younger child because mm-hmm. it's closer to my son's age and also a child children with disabilities mm-hmm. so if we put on our application form we are open to a child with disabilities once we submitted our application form more than likely would get placement straight like that mm-hmm. um, so because of the criteria we would be waiting up to six months to a year. I see. Um, on these forums that I'm following at the moment, because of the delays and the and the problems with me, familia, we have families that are here that have already had their dossier paperwork in, that have already been accepted, but still haven't been placed for with a child for over a year. Mm-hmm. And then international families that have been placed with a child that are living in country, but haven't been given their um, all their birth certificates and their sign off by the judge to leave country who are still waiting here for over a year mm. because this is the delay of the 15-month delay has caused all of these adoptions to be delayed. So we're in this process, but there are a lot of other families in different stages of the adoption that for a whole year have been on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, we met a family that were over here in the condos and they were here for one, over a year with their family of four they had their adopted um, daughter, but they weren't able, not the whole family could leave whenever they want, but obviously the parental care 
would have to stay with the child because she wasn't given her release form to have her passport and her birth certificate in order to go back to the States. Right. Because of everything just shut down. Yeah. So we're fortunate enough that we are not in that stage right. in a way. But it is a long process and it's super patience and, you know, divine timing. So I say to Zach and when we talk about it, you know, I don't get upset or frustrated by it and Zach's pretty easy going anyway. But I say things like when I pray and I do my affirmations that I say to her, you know, we're here, we're waiting. Maybe she's not even born yet. Mm -hmm. That's these things that I think. You know, I believe everything happens for a reason and if she's not even born yet, well, then we have time. She will be born. Or maybe she is there and she's waiting, but we connect. I connect with her and we're conscious and we talk to my son and say, are you okay to be a big brother? Are you going to be a good big brother? You have to look after your little sister. She's going to come soon. Um, you know, we create that energy around her. Um, and for me, it's about really trusting in the divine that, Whoever she is, she's out there, she's connected, and that's what I need to, to, to have faith in. Mm -hmm. Because if she's not born yet, then we need to wait. Of course, absolutely. It's not always in your control. Yeah. Um, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. I appreciate that. And I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who can relate and might at some point want to contact you to maybe get more insight into how that process can be expedited for them. Because it sounds like there's agencies in the States you can contact or you can come down like mm -hmm. you just described. Other families come down and do it on their own with yes. lawyers and stuff. So that's a really nice resource to have here. Absolutely. Um, I just want to transition back a little bit into you know your your spirituality and your practice of yoga and, and the things that are to come You know, with your podcast and the retreats that you are hosting. You know, and what somebody can expect, you know, because you're a, your presence, your energy is beautiful to be around. And, you know, people out there who want to come down and experience what you have to offer with your retreats, can you maybe take us through what they can expect, type of practices, the type of daily routines, the type of things that you will help them learn or practice? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Um, yeah, mm. so... Um Again, feeling that everything happens for a reason and that people come into our lives and your lives for a reason. When people come to the retreats or even just to stay at Mark and Dave's as guests, I really feel that both my husband and I, we are of service. So in regards to like spirituality or God or I'm not really um, affiliated with any religious sect or anything like that, more spirituality. But that concept that comes from Jesus and also through Hinduism is and Buddhism to be of service to others. So I feel like the divine is working through me and through my husband, even though he might not be conscious of that, to really share what we live as our life, which all of our friends are living as their lives here, with families or people who are living in other places where their lives are completely the opposite of what's here in Nicaragua. And so for us, why we're so drawn to be living here in Nicaragua is that it's a really nice way to keep it simple, to really connect with the earth, to share the joys of life and to get back to yourself and to get back to nature, get back to just being able to hear your breath and to sit in silence and maybe watch the sunset. 
So even though our guests at Mark and Dave's don't always think that they're coming to do a wellness retreat, they usually always end saying, oh, wow, it's just like I did a wellness retreat because we just live our life and we do that as we're hosting. So the food is all delicious, organic, straight from the fishing. Even my husband will go out and get fish and just cut the sashimi. You know, that's what is cultivated in the table and then around the table from beginning at the beginning of the day till night. It's that one-on-one concierge, really encouraging to attend my yoga classes while they're staying, encouraging them to take spa treatments. We have some amazing girls, which I met through Aqua Wellness who work with us, and they're all family that work, their family work with us at Mark and Dave's. And all of my staff, all of our staff have worked with us for over five years. And that's because we have a very family-orientated connection and we are so indebted to our Nicaraguan staff for allowing us to be here primarily to live and work in their country. And we really cultivate that connection of family because together we're stronger. So we have this really nice respect. So that's why our staff, they've been here for years. Mm -hmm. And also they get really good tips because we have really good clients that come So basically, all of us together as a team, we're attending the guests from the moment they arrive in the airplane and actually even before they get on the airplane. And our yoga retreats are very similar. We try and make everything effortless for them. So when they're doing their bookings, they choose what they want to do. They can do it beforehand by checking on the menu that they'd like to book a massage or maybe get a facial. They want to rent surfboards. Um, They want to organize this. Or they do it when they get here. And then we pretty much hold their hands through the whole experience. And it means that they can come down and enjoy the most beautiful location on a beautiful beach. They get to meet all of our friends down playing volleyball and whatnot out in the surf, which is a community that we've all cultivated to create, which we're all thriving from because it is, it's the community that people sense the most. They're like, wow, everyone's so friendly. Just went down to the beach club and just met the coolest guy and rah, rah, rah. I was out in the surf and rah, roo. The, the local guys are so friendly talking to me. Now, that's not just me and Zach. That's the whole vibe of this whole place, mm-hmm. which is why we all live here, as you know, Shapen, and why we all love it. And that extends all up and down the coast from Hagante all the way up. And so for, for the yoga retreat specifically, it really is about that idea of dropping down into yourself, being able to just connect to the silence and being able to hear your breath, to be able to let go of all of the distractions of what's in your everyday life, the traffic, the toxins, the noise, the TV screen, the iPod screen, to just let it all go for a week. Take some nice time. I really spend a lot of time doing meditation because the mind is the primarily the first obstacle with anything really clearing and cleansing the mind getting rid of all of those distractions from home if you're a mum coming to our class and you just live here it's about being able to let the children be with the nanny or be at home with your husband or wherever for an hour and a half and you just dedicate this time to yourself so really using the beautiful sanctuary palapa at mark and dave's which i'm so grateful for as a sacred space so when people come in they take their shoes off and the space you hold that space for people so when they come in, they can really just let go. Really well yeah. said. That's beautiful. Now, when you market these like yoga retreats, is that through your website, Kim Tasker Yoga? 
Um, or is no, that all, not really. It's all through yeah. Mark and Dave's. Yeah, so through Mark and Dave's. So my my website, I actually um, I took it down. Okay. Um, mainly because again, I was trying to cultivate that simpleness. So really trying to connect with Mark and Dave's, mm-hmm. and through them to use all of our resources together to build and create not just the Mark and Dave branding, but to um, to keep it simple so that people can access it and they can access me and reach out to me through my Facebook and Instagram. Okay. But mainly what I'm Which doing... Which is Kim Tasker Yoga. Yes. Okay. And then mainly what I'm doing is because I've gone back to my Ashtanga Yoga, I'm staying really strong with my Ashtanga practice. I'm building my community through my Ashtanga Yoga practice and then I'm cultivating a connection where they're coming to me mm-hmm. and people are reaching out to me to come and do the retreats. Um, so what for me I realized is that people need to meet me, know me, come and see the space, keep it simple, cultivate what's down here really, really strong, face-to-face meet people or someone hears through word of mouth because they've experienced it. They've actually come to a class. Mm-hmm. Then they've reached out to me. So that's what's happening with the retreats. Beautifully said. And I think you've kind of summed it up, but I want to just – ask one more question you know if somebody sitting out there listening to this who wants to bring their family down or start their family down in this environment you know what kind of advice could you give them to maybe encourage them to try it Mm. yeah um probably say to just really let go of any expectations of what you think Nicaragua is um and to try and really feel Nicaragua, um, it's hard to kind of dispose that in language in a way um, because we do get a lot of people that come here. And, for example, you know Hacienda Iguana. It's very comfortable. And if you want, you can stay here and not go outside the bubble. Right. And so you can live a very um, American-style life here if you want and not really have to even see Nicaragua or even touch it. But you get, and that's okay. It's okay if you like that. But to really feel Nicaragua is to kind of like be here and explore the country, not be afraid to smile at the Nicaraguan on the street. They don't always, like in Indo, I said this to Zach, in Indo, you go to Indo and they're like, hello, missus, hello, missus. Mm-hmm. And they're always smiling straight away. In Nicaragua, it took us a while to understand they don't actually always smile at you straight away here, but you smile at them and then all of a sudden they crack this big smile. You can't feel that unless you experience it and that means getting out of these little communities and going out and going to Omatepe and just feeling what's around and not having an expectation and then it seeps in. It's actually the reason why everyone's here. Like people come here and straight away they're like, oh, I love this place. I want to move here. How many times I've heard that, more so in the last few years, is like it's, it's insane. It's because when they come, they feel it. Right. And there is something, all that weight that's on their shoulder, it starts to lift. You know, I've, I've, we've met people here in Iguana and a husband's been sick, having a terminal illness. They've decided to come here for a vacation. Then they've decided, oh, we think we want to move here. We're going to pack up everything, sell everything. We're going to move here for two months. 
then they end up looking for property, real estate, and they end up buying, and they make that transition. And sometimes what, they get treatment here as well. Cause... Well, I'm not sure about that. Okay. But this is a lot. Of, some of the stories that I've heard, like some sort of trauma or mm-hmm. intense turning point in someone's life, has caused them to take a vacation. I see. And once they're here on vacation, they decide, well, I almost had a heart attack and died, and my sons are this age, and so and so died in my family, and it's made me take a check on life come for a holiday just to rebrief and then when they're here they're like hey fuck it i got to leave that world it's not helping me and this is what's important what's in front of me let's come and give it a go mm-hmm. and they didn't have an expectation but they allowed themselves to just be here I think if you come with too many expectations then obviously with anything in life you're going to get disappointed and you need time here I think in Nicaragua to kind of feel it you know just feel it out and yeah. Explore a bit. Yeah, know? absolutely. But it is doable. You can make a really beautiful life for yourself oh, here. Yeah, absolutely. And you're evidence of that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're super grateful to um, a lot of our friends that have helped us as well. Um, you know, we bought real estate here and we're building a house next year and we have an amazing job and an amazing relationship with Mark and Dave, a long one, like a family, you know, and we are supported by community. You know, and I think that's the biggest thing. You know, we miss our family a lot, but we're hopefully designing our life more where we can share our lives between two countries. And also our families come here and visit and they love it. And, you know, both Zach's mum and my mum, you know, they probably would hate to admit, but when they said it, my mum wrote it in a letter, Zach's mum said it to us, they want us to go home. Mm -hmm. They both said, we understand why you live in Nicaragua. When they were here... On the very last day before they left, both of them in their own way said, now that we are here, you guys are in the right place. We understand why you're living here. That's their blessing to us because once you're here, you just can't deny it. It's a beautiful place to bring up children. You know, we we have simplicity here. We have the beautiful beach, amazing surf, um, beautiful culture, really inexpensive. Um, you can build a really nice life for yourself. And it doesn't mean it comes easy. You have to work for it. And a lot of us, like, for example, Seth and Lindsay and, you know, all of our mates that you've been interviewing, we all pioneered and got a lot of things going here. It was super hard, like Cass and Ben got a lot of things going that weren't here way back then. Mm -hmm. So now, six years later, it's much easier for everyone else Mm -hmm. because all the pioneers kind of carved it out Mm -hmm. for them. But it's easier for us as well because there's better roads, there's a shop down the road, clinic's getting better, there's better water, you know, things develop. But um, it's not easy and, you know, jobs are not easy down here. So we're lucky with Mark and Days we've been able to cultivate a relationship with them for so long because it's not hard, it's not easy to have a long-term job here, you know, to create your own work and to have an income. You know, a lot of people work overseas and then they come back or, you know, they're dealing with jungle issues like the electricity goes out then all of a sudden the meat in the fridge it's gone because there's no gas in the generator and now all the meat's gone or whatever it is. You know, it's not just a walk in the park. You have to change the paradise jungle way to mould in with this really, it's a balance between Very the nice balance, lifestyle huh? yeah. and also the long drive, two and a half hours to Managua if you have to go to the hospital. Right. But mm-hmm. it's there. You know, so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you live such a dream and it's, would love to come and just work here and people joke, can I come and do dishes for a week? 
And, you know, we always go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the things we do behind the scene, it's a lot of effort, a lot of work, you know, because we can't just go down to the maintenance shop and just grab that tap screw or whatever because the tap just blew. Mm-hmm. You know, we're driving 45 minutes, albeit now we're driving with a nice road, but used to drive on a dirt road, as you know. So it's it's not an illusion that when you come down here you need to amend and adjust to this way of life, but it's easy to adjust to it if you have no expectations and you enjoy it. We enjoy the trip to rivers. We really make the most of going to Managua. Mm-hmm. We go to Cafe La Flora and grab the coffee. You know, we make the most of it, and everyone does the same grind. Now, everyone's going and doing that trip or doing the rivers run, you know, but we all enjoy it. If we had expectations and grievances about having to do it, then you'll never survive down here because it'll all just be too hard. Yeah, lifestyle design, it's not always easy, but the rewards, as you just described, are exponential. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, the easiest place to find you is through Mark and Dave, or do you have a, a like, is Kim Tasker Yoga the yeah. best place to find you? Yeah, so Kim Tasker Yoga is my Facebook um, reach out, and then you can also find me or direct message me on Kim Tasker underscore yogi. Um, that's my Instagram. Um, as I said, I took down my website and... Um, I'll probably be, you know, working um, more so to maybe get a website up once I get my podcast going. But it's kind of one of those things, again, I'm just trying to keep it simple. Um, And I feel that through my podcasts and the information I give through my podcast, that'll be the more direct way to keep in touch with me on a day-to-day basis with the teachings that come through the yoga. Yeah, I think that that voice that you have will be... Uh, sending many positive messages out there, which will attract many more followers. And it's going to be a really cool thing to watch grow. Fabulous, I just want to thank you so much, Kenny, for coming on. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shapen. I appreciate you inviting me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.